When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm John Stewart, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 11 of Music Is Not a Genre, MXG. I almost don't have to try with those hand gestures anymore. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Uh, again, if you are only listening, go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. There is a video for every episode. If you're watching, hello, you can see the stack of magazines I have behind me. And you can listen to this on any streaming service. Just look for Music is Not a Genre, and it will be there. Let's get to this week's topic, and it is music magazines. Believe everything you read. So, first of all, uh, why am I doing this? This is something that I... uh, have been thinking about doing for a while, but again, like for some reason, certain topics just seem daunting to me, and this just seemed like the right time. You know, you get inspired. You re- yeah, re- I read down my list, and the ones that pop out at me are the ones that I end up, uh, you know, getting to for the most part. Uh, by the way, for those of you who aren't watching, I have a I have a hat on that's supposed to be like a journalist slash uh, musician's hat. Uh, that that's the that's the effort that I put out for this show. Uh, I know you will thank me later. So the other reason, I mean, the reason that I'm doing this for real is because music journalism has been a huge part of my life. It's something that I have followed for decades. I've always been, uh, I've been inspired by it. I've been fascinated by it. I've always been drawn to it. Most of the music that I have discovered and listened to including artists who have become my heart artists, which if you know MXG, you know what that means. Uh, I, I discovered th- through some publication or another or an online writing uh, that that means that music magazines have gone a long way in driving my musical likes and loves and tastes. So I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to it. You can see this stack behind me. For those of you who can't, I'll describe it. It's several inches tall, and that's just a fraction of the magazines that I still have, which themselves are a fraction of the magazines that I have uh, purchased over the last several decades because I got rid of a lot of them, whether I was just sold them or threw them out or whatever. Uh, most of them are Rolling Stone. There's some spin, uh, and I think that's generally it. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, talk about history. Uh, magazines. I, I, one of the presents that I wanted was a subscription to Rolling Stone, and you can see behind me the one that I am uh, looking at here, or the one that I have uh, displayed is uh, one of the first uh, that I got. One of the first issues that I got. It was their twentieth uh, anniversary issue. So you can do the math, but. That's, you know, why I'm doing this episode. Now, why the subtitle? Believe everything you read. Well, first of all, it's just fun. You know, it's the exact opposite of what everybody tells you to do. But second of all, my belief is that almost all music journalism is opinion. 
And other than historic, you're you're talking about this happened, that happened. Uh, most, almost all, is opinion, and I don't just mean reviews because those are those are opinion, no matter how insightful or well informed they are. I also mean things like. Uh, which songs, you know, are the songs that are on the charts, the the ones that are the best or, you know, or, or which artists are the best artists and, you know, just kind of general judgments like that. I also mean things like music, musician writing. In other words, somebody telling you how to play guitar, or how to play the drums or, or whatever. Sure. Everybody needs to know a certain level of basics, but even those basics can vary. So one person telling you this is the technique to use that's an opinion. If that technique doesn't work for you, use a different opinion. So it's, it is my way of saying that uh, among many other forms of journalism, uh, this, this to me, I think uh, arts journalism is, is the most filled with opinion in, in mind because it's, you know, they say, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder, ear of the beholder. Big disclaimer, uh, this is going to be about the history of music magazines and music journalism as far back as I can trace it. And uh, there will be a bonus episode on zines. And when I go over what I believe are the five types of music publications, and you'll see that's one of them, you'll see why maybe I decided to save this for the bonus episode on patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's a topic unto itself zines and i've always been uh in, in in you know kind of in love with them and it's nice to see that they're making a comeback but again that'll be for the bonus episode this is not going to be about publications that feature music writing but aren't strictly about music such as um the new york times uh, entertainment weekly long may it rest uh npr or even the onion i'll make mention of these here and there but this is about publications that are dedicated to music uh, even if they didn't start that way. Some of the sources I've used, there was a Prezi presentation by James Gay uh, that had a lot of good information. Wikipedia, of course, is a huge one for me. Uh, the website's parlorsongs.com. You, as in just the letter U, youdiscovermusic.com. AaronGilbreth.substack.com did uh, an article on where have all the music magazines gone. Uh, punctuationmag.com, and that's P-U-N-K tuition, uh, Brief History of Zines. And those are just the, the main sources that I used. So for this episode, I'm going to be starting with describing to you what I believe are the five kinds of music publications. Then I'm going to go through the history, which is going to take a while, talk about some music journalists themselves, uh, a little bit more about my relationship with uh, music journalism, music magazines, some conclusions, of course, the featured song, uh, another mention of the bonus episode and questions for you. So it's, it's, it's a typical episode and I'm really excited. Uh, let's get into it right now. Yes, there are five kinds of of music publications. Now, if someone out there discovers one kind I've missed and wants to name it as a six that doesn't fall under one of these categories, please chime in. I'd love to know. But here, to my best estimation, what I believe are the five kinds. One would be the trade magazine. So about the music business, usually for people in the music business, such as Billboard, cash box they are meant for the industry although we can buy them too and and you know it's like kind of like variety for the you know entertainment and, and film and tv industry that type of thing you're going to get other information in there and articles and things but it's meant really for the industry 
B would be general interest music magazines such as Rolling Stone and Spin. Uh, they're meant for fans. They're meant for fans of music in general. Uh, you know, they don't they don't focus on one kind of music strictly. Even if they started that way, they branch out and cover a whole bunch of different kinds of music. Uh, NME uh, started out. Or enemy is kind of straddled those two as far as being a trade magazine or a general interest magazine. I feel like it's it's a little bit of both or has been. The third kind is genre-specific magazines, such as magazines devoted to uh, heavy metal, hip-hop, punk, jazz, country, you, you know, you name it. Those are even ones dedicated to subgenres or even certain bands if they're actual publications that to me falls under that third category, being very specific to one genre, not general interest. D would be uh, technical, in- instrument or tech specific. Those that deal with uh, instruments, bass, guitar, drums, those that deal with recorded sound or audio, uh, music audio in some way, live sound. Uh, some examples are Guitar World, Acoustic Guitar, Electronic Musician, Keyboard Magazine, Sheet Music. Music magazine, which for some reason I couldn't find a whole lot about online, even though that was a big part of my life. And I'll talk about that later. And Mix magazine is another one. Uh, A lot of those I get, uh, a few of those I get for free as being part of the industry. And then the fifth category is the fanzine or zine, which are usually self-published there are there have been ones that have been mass marketed and, and look like zines that are you know don't come from that world or i guess fake in a way but but you know you use your own judgment but those are uh not mass marketed yeah they're usually local and all of that that's what the bonus episode is about patreon.com slash music is not a genre so let's get into the history uh the the printing press was invented in the 15th century. And that's, the, yeah, and, and if you hear that, you think this is going to be a three-hour episode. No, I'm just kind of going over a little bit of the, the you know, how this came about. Uh, there were uh, precursors of music writing until the 16th, or of magazines in general, of generally of the magazine as a thing. There were precursors locally published until about the 1660s when magazines started to take off in earnest uh, with one in particular, Edifying Monthly. Uh, You know, you tell me about it. I don't really know much about it. Uh, Focus here is going to be largely on the U.S. and U.K. Just so you know, I always do, I try to do this disclaimer with every episode, but if you know of publications and from other countries that should be mentioned, please let me know. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind 
and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. That said, the first evidence of the first formal music magazine that I could find, probably not the actual first that may have been lost to history, but the first is not a, not a, an English magazine. It's a French magazine called Revue Musicale. I think that's how you pronounce it. Founded in 1827. So the real history I'm going here starts in 1827. It merged with another magazine in 1835 to form Revue et Gazette Musicale de Paris, published until 1880. So it has uh, an over 50-year history there of, of being published with many magazines today don't have that kind of a history. That's the first one that I could find evidence of. Now, that leaves, uh, I mean, that is part of what I call the pre-modern era, which I'm not going to divide these into eras. It's just too much. And as a good music journalist friend of mine, Steve Erickson said, how are you going to cover the entire history of music magazines in an hour? We'll see. huh? In 1852, Dwight's Music Journal began its publication uh, I'm sure there were plenty of others that started them, but that was the one I could find. That published for about 30 years. And after that, there was kind of a mini explosion of music magazines in the U.S., uh, especially through the late 19th century, including some called The Musician, Perry's Music Magazine, and The Echo. But the most interesting might be one called The Etude, which started in 1883 and published for 70 years. It, it, it ceased publication in 1954, 71 years, because it spanned what to me are a key set of decades in the development of music consumption and production. You're talking about, you know, the advent of recorded music and the change of formats and all of that and of music publications and journalism in general. And what I love about it is that it was largely egalitarian in what it covered. It didn't stick to one. You would think the etude. Oh, it was classical music. It did not stick to one kind of music. It was aimed also at musicians of all levels and all tastes, as I as I mentioned. So it wasn't just for the professional musicians, the amateur, the beginner, and all of that. Uh, that pre-modern era arguably culminated with uh, the the creation of Billboard magazine in 1894. Uh, didn't start out as a music magazine. I always wondered why it was called that. Was it a clever name? It was actually a magazine about billboards. It was a magazine about advertising. In 1894, here's where you could go to get uh, a billboard printed for your business or what are, you know, whatever. It, it was a trade magazine about advertising, specifically bill posters. Uh, and it started to dip into covering entertainment, the entertainment industry, uh, you know, anything that existed as entertainment back then. It started to go heavier into music as the jukebox and the phonograph and the radio hit their stride in the early 1900s. But it wasn't fully about music alone 
until well into the 1900s. So for the first several decades of Billboard's existence, it was uh, first an advertising and then a more kind of entertainment and and general interest magazine uh, of that sort. Which brings me to the next era, uh, to what I think, and that's the modern era, which to me started from uh, the 1920s, which was with the advent of uh, recorded music and discs being more popular than cheap music and, and you know, people buying recorded music in droves, uh, at least what would be considered droves back then. It's when recorded music became a real business. Melody Maker, famous, really famous magazine, starts in 1926, and it is the first magazine to start its publication with charts. Uh, charts were not in every music magazine. We take that for granted now. We see them all online. Everybody's got lists of everything. That didn't start until actual recorded music was being sold to any significant degree. So 1926, Melody Maker, its first ep- uh, issue, had charts. And it ran from 1926 until the year 2000, when it then merged with M- NME, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. So, uh, you know, it still exists, in, I guess, in some submerged and, and merged form. Billboard didn't add charts until 1936. So by then it was a music magazine and it started with a few charts uh, that you would expect and continue to expand to the point now where we just have charts, 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 all kinds of charts, you, you name it. You know, there's subcharts and all that stuff, and as it should be, one chart should not dominate what's considered popular. I'm really, I'm really vibing with the hat I'm wearing right now because I feel like a journalist. Uh, so now we get to what I call the postmodern era, which to me started in in well, I'll say this: you can trace the beginning of the postmodern era back to 1952 with the founding of NME, a new musical express, I believe, which means, and to me, this is what I, I'm saying about the modern era, postmodern era, general interest magazines catering to fans and not industry pros, having charts, having reviews, kind of mass marketed music journalism. That to me is like the, 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 the post, the, the pre, well, I mean, I guess, yeah. I'll call it the postmodern era. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, So 1952 NME, Record Mirror, which is also British, uh, 1954. This is not strictly music, but deserves a mention. Uh, The um, late great Village Voice started in 1955. They started uh, something called Paz and Jop, which which was its music reviews in 1971, uh, but always had music in there to some degree. And it's it's pretty you know influential for its time, so I thought it would deserve mention. Uh, the Gavin Report in 1958, which was mostly just for charts, but to me, the real start of this postmodern era, even though those were precursors of that in the 50s, uh, early 60s, is Roll and not Rolling Stone. No, you would think so, right? And you would think that an episode like this might even start with Rolling Stone. But as I'm showing you, uh, music journalism existed long before Rolling Stone. The year before, two significant publications started, Crawdaddy and Circus. These were people, music lovers, rock music lovers in particular, who believed that there was enough of an interest in a market in creating a magazine solely for rock music. Uh, then Rolling Stone in 1967. And that, of course, that to me in many ways still dominates, although there are others who have surpassed it in, for various reasons. 
But the one then when you think music journalism, 95% of people are going to probably, you know, Rolling Stone will pop into their head. If not first, then to some degree. Uh, followed by Cream, C-R-E-E-M, in 1969. And yes, I, I will continue to say this. You can't underestimate the importance uh, and impact of Rolling Stone. Not because it's perfect. Not because it did everything or it does everything well. But because it showed that there was a, a legit way to have a music magazine that covered music beyond just uh, teen teen dream look at what ricky nelson was doing you know today or whatever and went into the music itself and the artists themselves and had you know depth and substance and eventually range and all of that and other magazines would follow in its wake so which is why i think it was so important uh 1970s saw a huge explosion of music magazines especially ones that focused on a single genre that that's when when you think about the history of music and I talk about music is not a genre, but I also talk about my secret love of, of genres because I love categorization, but I love things that break out of categories. It's all very complex and weird. Uh, the way music, and in particular, in this case, rock music developed, it started as this uh, almost almost homogenous thing that then broke into factions the way all music does. You've got the advent of hip hop and then so many subgenres since then, the advent of punk and so many sub etc. Same thing happened with music magazines where you had these kind of like big monolithic rock music magazines that then broke into their subgenres or just one genre. So now Rolling Stone did the opposite and said, we're going to branch out and do all kinds of music uh, or as much as we can cover. And then these others stepped in and said, well, we're just going to do heavy metal. We're just going to do punk, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of the 1970s saw a huge explosion of zines, huge. Uh, and, and they were largely self-published, and they were largely about punk. And that's all I'm saying about this, because even thinking about it, I realize why this couldn't fit into this episode. There's too much information here, as the Duran Duran song says. And so the bonus episode at patreon.com slash music is not a genre is going to be all about zines. If you're a fan of music, a fan of zines, a fan of comics, a fan of sci-fi, a fan of self-publishing in general, you're going to want to see this episode, this bonus episode, patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Uh, some significant publications in the or 1970s, uh, Electronic Musician in 1975, originally known as Polyphony. Uh, electronic musician is still around today. Uh, I think it's I think it's still print, uh, but I I've mostly read it online. Same year that keyboard magazine started, and I mention these because it shows just like with music, the the advent of new kinds of music prompted the advent of new kinds of music magazines. So electronic musician talked even back then about what gear could you buy to create electronic music what what musicians were doing electronic music keyboard magazine was about techniques or types of keyboards eventually about programming it was huge for me uh when i got my first professional keyboard the ensonic esq1 i would frequently get keyboard magazine to be able to program a certain keyboard sound that didn't exist there and would save it on a cartridge or cassette believe it or not uh, as well 
And one of which, the one I can remember as I wanted to get that Who uh, keyboard from Baba O'Reilly, and I found a, a publication, a keyboard magazine that had a program for it, and I programmed it, and I was just blown away. It sounded it sounded great, at least for its time. Uh, in in nineteen eighty, with some more significant publications, uh, you have Kerrang, K E R R A N G, in nineteen eighty one, which focused on rock, punk, and metal. So. You think of the explosion of genre-specific magazines in the 1970s, and then you get one here that is somewhat genre-specific, but is combining that, all that kind of hard-edged rock music. The Wire uh, in the UK in 1982, which I'm going to mention later because print, 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 it's still doing print, but it's become pretty significant online in terms of reviews, at least. Spin in 1985 uh, started, and I've got when I get to my conclusions and opinions, I'll talk a little bit about to me about to me the difference between Spin and Rolling Stone, uh, some thoughts on Pitchfork and things like that, and you'll see why I mentioned Pitchfork and Spin in the same breath a little bit later on. Spin uh, ceased print publication in 2012. Went fully digital. Rolling Stone is still one of the holdouts. I uh, don't currently have a subscription, but I plan to renew it soon. But you know, getting a getting a magazine in the mail is a thrill in a way. It's a novelty almost at this point. It's like getting the I get the Sunday paper. You know, every week. Uh, it's a nice break from reading things on your phone or on your pad or on your computer or whatever. And it does have that sense of novelty but there's there's a it i'm not even saying one's better than another i read most of my books on my phone to be honest but to hold a book in your hand is a kind of nice break you know for for many reasons and i think because i'm getting into the post post you know modern i'm still in the postmodern era but we're creeping up into what's coming next uh, which was this again a kind of a huge explosion in the 80s and 90s of magazines and then the advent of online magazines, it's a good time to take a break. So I'm going to break right here and we will be back after my usual message. Hey, so I was going to do the usual and just list all of the links that I'd love for you to check out. But I realized that everything you need to know and everywhere you need to go is at nickdematio.com. That really is the hub. I list all the links in every episode just in case, but nickdematio.com is where I put everything that I do. If you want to know more about this podcast, whether it's the audio version or the YouTube version at youtube.com slash app music is not a genre or wherever else the podcast shows up, or if you want to support the podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre, just go to nickdematio.com. It's all there. If you want to check out my full discography of original music and covers, for my band Rec, R-E-C, and beyond, it's at nickdematio.com, including all the streaming and social links for wherever you listen to music and wherever you check out your sosh. Uh, my acting clips are there. My voiceover clips are there. Graphic design, my blog, and most especially, it's the best place to contact me. If you go to nickdematio.com slash contact or just hit the contact is on every single page, you can send me a note, say hello, ask me any questions you'd like. You get a newsletter a few times a month. And if you have a project of your own and need work done for it, whether it's audio editing or music or voiceover or graphic design, or if you have an event and you need live music, go to nicktomatio.com, contact me, say hello, let me know what you need. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show.
All right, we're back. Uh, when last we spoke, which was, I, I forget how long my promo is, a minute and a half. Uh, uh, did you skip through it? Did you do the 10 second, 10 second? I do that with all commercials, or is it 15 seconds, whatever. When I'm listening to a podcast, I'm like, I love you guys, but I don't need to hear this. Sometimes when I'm like listening to a podcast and doing dishes, I just let it run. And that's interesting. But I'm very much one of those people who's like, I don't need commercials. Uh, that said, I hope you listen to mine because it's, you know, one way that you can support this podcast is to follow any of the links that I that I have there or any of the links below. And I always appreciate people who support it, especially at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Or if you share it with people, that's always wonderful. So where we were last was uh, I mentioned spin in 1985 is significant because for two reasons, because one is was the first true uh, rival uh, in many years of Rolling Stone and became a rival and became an alternative voice in both the music sense of the world and the public in the journalism sense of the world. And there are pros and cons to that, which I'm going to talk about later on when I talk about just kind of the, the tenor of music journalism. But it's, you know, spin is something that I did subscribe to for many years and I sort of had a love hate relationship with it. Uh, alternative press started in 1985 as well. Of note, the onion started publication in 1988 uh, I remember actually reading that through college and beyond. It didn't start the AV Club, which is that subset of The Onion that does reviews of you know film and music and all of that, until 1993. And again, I'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later on, the AV Club. Uh, in 1993, speaking of, Vibe and Mojo both started. Blender started in 1994. Pitchpork, Pitchpork. Well, that's a Freudian slip. That is a Freudian slip, but the audience is laughing. Pitchfork in 1995, which was originally called Turntable. And again, when I get to conclusions and stuff, I'm going to be talking about Pitchfork. Get ready. Uh, XXL in 1997 uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, you know, I mean, other than Vibe, one of the first uh, or second successful hip-hop um, uh, magazines, uh, mass-marketed. Though not fully about music, I think Slant, uh, starting in 2001, deserves a mention. Uh, it's online only, so it was sort of right at the beginning of, of what's coming up, the next era that I'll talk about. Uh, it has reviews and interviews from all of the arts, uh, but worth mentioning for that reason and for the onlineness of it. Which brings me to the last era, current era of music magazines, the uh, digital era. Uh, digital magazines started popping up quite a bit in the 1990s, both digital versions of print magazines as well as magazines that existed only online. Many started by, you know, just regular people who you didn't need a huge budget for it or whatever. As people started to read more online, especially as like pads and PDAs and smartphones and tablets and all those things kind of came about, you know, print started to decline. Talk about everything in music journalism paralleling everything in the music world, the music industry. Same exact time as physical music sales started to decline when people would listen to music more online. People were reading more about music online. Some of the websites I mentioned as sources uh, mark the fall of print you know, journalism in general as starting somewhere between 2008 and the mid 2010s, the 2008, the economy bust in 07, 08, gutted a lot of, uh, you know, industries in general and, and 
companies. And then by the mid 2010s, so many people were reading online, partly because of the ease and partly because it's cheaper. They couldn't afford to get the publication. So a lot of those magazines that I mentioned transitioned to online only. There are, as I said, a few holdouts uh, like Rolling Stone. And by then, by the 2000s uh, especially, lots of music blogs popped up. And they're important to mention because even though they aren't magazines, they're the as, a, as opinion as an opinion can get, and they're varying degrees of uh, you know quality, they're very significant for musicians who create their own music, who release their own music. You, if you can get mentioned on a blog, you get a lot of traction with the music you're creating. I mean, assuming that the mention is a good mention, but even when it's not. <clears throat> and that's still true. And there was a time when blogs were pretty easy to access because not many people knew about them. That is no longer the case. Just like with everything, there's a lot more competition, a lot more uh, no notice of that. So more people are, are, you know, sending their music to blogs. But it's something if you are a creative musician out there, check, you know, see if you can find some of the blogs that uh, cater to the kind of music that you do. Uh, the current sites that are go to's for a lot of people online for you know music magazines since this entire episode is about magazines and just like i do with albums with the album uh, series it's not about vinyl it's about album as art this is about music magazines as journalism and not as uh, print you know just print so some go-to's pitchfork mojo nme billboard rolling stone uh, under the radar the Quietest, which started in 2008, is uh, is right now a pretty big one. The Wire, which I mentioned, started in 1982 and still does print, but has a very significant and crucial online presence, The Wire. Spin is now fully online. Uh, the Fader is is one that's uh, been mentioned often. Stereo Gum, uh, I've seen, is, a, is pretty decent. Uh, and just like with cassettes recently... Zines have resurged, if that's a word, in popularity. Uh, I've seen both cassettes and zines in uh, music stores. And yes, I have seen music stores. So that to me is something that is worth mentioning because you never know when an old technology is going to come back or what kind of impact it's going to have. And I'm curious to see where zines go, as I, as I am curious to see where cassettes go, if they go anywhere. We've already seen where the resurgence of vinyl goes, and it's usually to um, uh, purist assholes who think that's somehow better than every other kind of music, or people who are collectors who happen to love vinyl. Uh, absolutely, there's total judgment there. So uh, that may happen with cassettes, or it may not. I always thought cassettes were more of an egalitarian mode and medium because it, you could create your own cassettes and the way they were shared and blah, blah, blah. And you can quote unquote burn a copy of vinyl on cassette, which I used to do all the time so I could listen to it in the car. Uh, I feel like zines are sort of like that too, although both are more expensive to do than just sharing your music or thoughts or finding it online, which is why it's interesting that they are, you know, existing in coming back up in popularity in the real world, in the, in the, in the tangible world, which brings me to music journalists. Uh, I'm not counting in this musicians who write about music, although there are some very significant musicians who have done that. One that has been brought up very often is Joni Mitchell, who has written a lot about music, 
herself and is, of course, an amazing musician. Uh, uh, I've read books by Bono. I've read, you know, a book by uh, Liz Fair and all of that. Absolutely. They deserve mention, but I'm I'm kind of setting them aside in favor of people whose careers are about it. So some famous ones, Lester Bangs, uh, and I, b- I believe that he or a doppelganger of him was featured in that movie, Almost Famous, um, but he's that controversial, passionate, hugely influential journalist who wrote for Cream and Rolling Stone and I'm sure others in the in the 70s, in the 80s. It was huge in the 70s for, I, I forget when he died, so I could be mistaking how long he wrote, but he was a character in the way Hunter Thompson was a character. Uh, and a lot of people read uh, and took to heart what he wrote. Uh, Robert Criscow, uh, I love his writing style, and though I don't always agree with what he says, I usually do. And to me, it's this. I've, I talked about this in my reviews episode where I talked about the difference between a, a, a critique and a review or whatever. Uh, there are people who love music. They are in love with music. A, a, a fan of mine uh, was talking about my George Winston episode and we talked about uh, on chatted on YouTube about how George Winston didn't just love music. He was in love with music. And I, I feel the difference in myself. I feel it in people I know, whether they are musicians or not. And that's true also for writers. There are certain writers like Robert Criscow, Rob Sheffield, who's Rolling Stone and Spin, who are just music lovers. They give a certain uh, deference to music creators that you don't always get from people who are fully, so fully on the outside looking in that there's almost um, a jealousy there to where they feel like the power they get is by uh, passing judgment on these musicians and and in some ways uh, picking them apart or tearing them down even when they like them. As opposed to people who come from a point of of love and acceptance and may also write reviews that have some negativity to them, but do it with a with a sense of respect and deference. And I feel like anything I've ever like I read Rob Sheffield's book, Love is a Mixtape, and I just love that book, you know, and then again, like I said, Robert Criscow, some others, uh, Griel Marcus from Rolling Stone, New York Times, Village Voice. Uh, he is someone who has been has been said about him taught the world to take rock music seriously, and you'm sure you had a lot of classical music and jazz, you know, uh, reviewers who were, who already had that sense of uh, height, heightened importance. Grill Marcus kind of gave that to the rock world. Uh, British uh, Simon Reynolds, another biggie. Chuck Klosterman, he's not exclusively music. But I have to mention him because he wrote that book in the 1990s that I keep coming back to in my head and in conversation because so much of what was said in there just blew me away in terms of what the 1990s meant historically and means and all of that and its significance. And he is a very, uh, to me, a pretty uh, well-informed writer about music as well. Uh, some others, John Landau, Ben Ratliff. Uh, John Caramancia, Ann Powers, Ellen Willis, John Perellis, and a special mention. And I'm look, I'm leaving out a ton of music journalists, which answers my friend's question as to how I can cover all this in an hour. I'm leaving out a lot. This is a survey. 
And it hopefully hopefully wets your whistle to get more into any one of the things that I've mentioned, whether it's Revue Musicale or Rolling Stone or Enemy or whatever. Pitchfork. Pause. Pitchfork. Uh, but that said, I would like to make special personal mention of two journalists I know, music journalists, and they are Steve Rosen, the man who wrote about uh, Eddie Van Halen, who, uh, whose interview I did a few episodes ago, and another Steve, Steve Erickson, whose name pops up on this podcast quite often because we have frequent conversations about music. And he has been a guest uh, other than, I believe, other than my uh, dad and my wife is the most uh, frequent guest on this, uh, on this podcast. So some music journalism. I'm going to talk a little bit about my opinion of music journalism. I I mean, I mentioned it a little bit already, uh, a little bit later on. My my relationship with music, as I mentioned, um, I used to hear my dad talk a lot about Billboard and Cashbox. And if you don't know what Cashbox is, and it does still exist online, it stopped publication a long time ago, uh, they were the two big publications to go to when you wanted to read the charts. And if your song hit the chart on either of those during that period, you were considered somewhat of a success. And one of my dad's songs did hit the charts. I believe it was on Cashbox uh, in the early 1960s. And so there was always mention of those in the household. And I was always fascinated by the trade publication because of those conversations. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Sheet Music Magazine was significant to me because my dad subscribed to it and he would often learn songs from it. And every now and then I would pick one up and learn songs from it. It was a magazine that published full sheets for songs. Usually, piano based or guitar based it wasn't like the, there weren't scores in there uh but that it, you know there were th- and they would often do like historic issues where it would say oh here's a piece of sheet music that's out of print now that was uh very very popular in 1915 or whatever because back then music sales before recorded era were based on how many sheets were sold which i always think is kind of cool uh, of course, Rolling Stone uh, is, is going to be my favorite. It's always been my favorite. I don't always agree with what they say. I've often mentioned how they seem to just not give enough respect to Billy Joel. And I'm sure that's the case for other artists that they have, for some reason, feel the need to disparage. And they have create you know put out opinions that have clearly been proven to be wrong and and to their credit have said that they will do reviews and say oh look at what we said about this album from 1993 we said it sucked and now it's one of the all-time you know top 500 whatever okay sort of like new york times which not a perfect publication but they're always open to correcting themselves when they when they mess up something uh i was a subscriber of spin for a very long time and uh, I get free industry music magazines such as Mix and Electronic Musician because I, you know, I register as a music industry person. And uh, I've, again, always been fascinated by zines. Patreon.com slash music is not a genre if you want to see the zines episode, which I haven't done yet. I'm going to do that in a second uh, behind the scenes there. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But let's get back to me keep continuing to mention Spin. Spin to me, and I know it wasn't the first, couldn't be the first, but it was my first exposure to a publication that uh, whose cachet was all about being snarky. And they spin to me, couldn't hold a candle to Pitchfork in its heyday or the Onions AV Club in, in, in their level of indie elitism that that felt it it was important to tear down popular things or you know like a, a good a, a guy i used to know once said it's a perfect example of the attitude if i follow a band and then that band gets signed to a major label i stop following them i'm like this is the exact kind of attitude that i think uh creates division in music instead of connection and i feel like certain publications like uh, I don't know what Spin's like now. I just stopped reading it. But like Spin in its heyday, like the Pitchfork, especially in the 2000s, although I will contend Pitchfork is a is a particular uh, purveyor of this kind of terrible attitude, tearing down Liz Fair's eponymous album because it didn't sound like old Liz Fair, tearing down, you know, or bolstering indie artists simply because they're indie and quirky whether or not their music was good or had any you know significance beyond it being indie and quirky really leaning in the direction of being indie elitist to such a large degree that they were called out for it enough to change their tack to a bit in the 2010s and beyond but yet as i was starting to say i will contend that they haven't changed that much there's still a place to go to if you want to get attitude over review and this is why i stopped subscribing to spin during the time when it was really doing this this is why i stopped reading the av club because of that type of elitism and and my belief is this when you say you are liberal when you say you know you are indie if you are doing that at the expense of other things that are popular so in other words Liberal to me means open to all, you know, like it, it's, uh, again, I use this word a lot, egalitarian, whatever it is, but you are discounting certain things because too many people like them, then really how liberal are you? You know, if you think liberalism itself is about only accepting certain people because you agree with their viewpoint, how liberal are you, you know? I don't have to agree with somebody's point of view on music or politics or whatever, but if fundamentally they're a kind person and not a total jerk or evil or aggressive or whatever it is, then I can respect them as a person or I can respect a certain kind of music, even if that's, that's not my thing. And these publications, they don't do that and they never did that. And I honestly think they, they rarely do that now. Uh, and like I said, that to me leans in towards there's a difference between it being a, uh, you know, a critic and and someone who is critiquing someone who is writing with an inf- informed and insightful opinion with with like the Rob Sheffield approach where 
even if you don't like something, you're respecting it. You're respecting the fact that it was created by somebody who put something out into the world and all of that. Uh, and and I don't think music journalism is... I think most things don't change. They change the format. They change the maybe the focus and the percentages to which they happen. But the, the mix of things in the world rarely changes very much. You still have a lot of highbrow uh, journalists, especially in publications like the New York Times, who are elitist for a different reason. Uh, and not all New York Times music journalists are. I mean, I've written, I've read a, the book review in New York Times. Same thing. There are so many book reviewers there who do great reviews of books, and there are others who immediately, when you start reading them, you're like, oh, this is just going to be a page of attitude, you know. And uh, and that's a different kind of elitism, you know. And it's also, again, you're you're grasping power for yourself because you can tear down somebody who's created something. Uh, you've got the middle brow Rolling Stone, not always right, but tends to accept all comers. Uh, you've got the totally low brow and opinion based, which I would include, you know, in some ways myself in and other podcasters who we're not, I'm not claiming to be a journalist of any sort. And a lot of what I say, while it does have information and, and is ed- educational in some way, is based a lot on what I want to cover and my opinion of it. It's not about... Uh, oh, this is the the topic of the day, so I'm going to cover that. Or this is my even-handed approach. You know, I try to cover everything, and I try to call out when I'm making a judgment or having an opinion. But uh, that's different from being uh, a, a at least a more objective, I'll say, music journalist. Some big moments in the history of music journalism, of course, uh, Billboard in the 1890s, uh, but but especially in the 1930s as it switched to music. Melody Maker, NME, Rolling Stone, Electronic Musician, Spin, Vibe, Pitchfork, The Quietus are all important marks in how music journalism changed over the years. Trade magazines are still important, even if you're not aware of them. Billboard is still around. Uh, To me, general interest is still the best and usually the least biased of all the music magazines because it's trying to cater to as many people as possible. It it forces the writers to be a little bit more open, is is what I think. There's still lots of vibrant genre and musician-focused magazines. And like I said, zines are making a comeback. That's what the bonus episode is about. Uh, It's going to come up a a little bit uh, after my featured song. I'm going to pause this recorded device here and do the bonus episode at patreon.com slash music is not a genre all about the history of zines and the current state of zines. That's music journalism. That's music magazines, uh, which brings me to the featured song, which how do you do that? Like I'm talking about publications that talk about all kinds of music. What song could tie into that? I chose a song from my album, The Metro Grand Sessions, called It's Almost Over. I have always solicited reviews for my albums, for Rex albums, and have gotten usually quite a few and enough to be able to put them in press releases and and, and online and stuff like that. Metro Grand was a particular one in that it was the last one that I did with an outside producer in a studio, fully and 100% in a studio and not at home and whatever and, and on the fly. And it was done with a producer who had worked with some other big name acts. So there was a hope that it would go somewhere. That producer uh, died a couple of months after we finished recording. So a lot of things didn't happen, but what did happen was I got a lot of reviews for this album and almost all of them were positive except one. 
which was super, super negative and in hindsight, super, super funny in that it was a, it was a, of in the pitchfork era, early pitchfork era, and it was like a pitchfork review. This guy thinks he's all that because his artist name is Nick. It's just a first name. Who does he think he is? Prince. And, and at the time I was a little butthurt by it. And then I realized, yeah, actually, yeah, no, that's probably why I did it. You know, like I'm thinking of those artists I revere. I wanted a simple name. I wanted an accessible name like wreck, but I wanted, but I also was like, yeah, I'm one name. I'm Nick, you know? So you, you got me there. He didn't like a lot of what I did. Again, it was the sole super negative review, but what he did like were two songs. Come a little closer, which has stood the test of time for a lot of people, and a song called "It's Almost Over," which I have a music video on YouTube if you'd like to see it. It's the first full music video I ever did. No matter the the reviewer, those songs tend to be mentioned frequently. And since I already shared "Come a Little Closer," which please look it up, it's on my YouTube uh, playlist of featured songs. I'm sharing "It's Almost Over." because I haven't yet, because I guess it's critic proof, because even the people who didn't like the album liked that song, and because it was name-checked by a bunch of other critics who did like the album. It was my first song to incorporate my casual love of quantum physics. I mentioned Schrodinger's cat and and the fact that wave is a part the light is both a wave and a particle and blah 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 and how it can be split in two in certain experiments and all this. Um and but I mean it you know it's metaphors so it's about something else it's kind of an indie rocker you could say and it like i said pretty well received but it's going to play in a second so you can be the judge of that uh speaking of you being the judge of that are you a magazine reader have you ever read or subscribed to print versions of magazines do you like reading music reviews in uh other publications like newspapers or you know online or do you listen to podcasts that are about music reviews they're huge right now. What are some of your favorites? Are there any I mentioned are your favorites or ones I didn't mention? I would love to hear about those. Which ones do you think cover music as broadly and even-handedly as possible, even if they're genre-specific? Is there one, oh, this um, you know, website is only about punk music or post-punk music, but it covers it in a way that takes all comers and takes them at face value and doesn't judge them based on whether or not they're they're indie or have a certain sound or certain production, whatever. I want to hear about all your opinions on this and everything I talk about, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.